Uh, we read from John chapter 20, um, from verse 1. Uh, this is John chapter 20. This can be found on page 1545 of the Pew Bibles. John chapter 20, verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from it. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running. The, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the, uh, the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was lying on, and it's still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? What is it you are looking for? Who is it that you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabuni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told them, that he had said these things to her. Amen. Uh, good morning, everybody. Uh, it'd be good to keep John chapter 20 open in front of you. If you've got one of those church Bibles there, it's on page 1,545, I think. Let's pray. Let's ask God for help as we think about this part of his word. Let's speak to God. Our loving Father, we thank you that you speak and we pray for ears that hear and understand. We pray for eyes that see and perceive and we pray for soft hearts this morning. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, last year, 53,000 people went missing according to the stats on the Australian Federal Police's missing persons website, 53,000 people. Now, many of them are found one way or another, 
there's still at any sort of given time around 2,600 people who are long-term missing, vanished, without a trace, gone. Now, I don't know about you, I find that staggering, that flesh and blood, adult-sized people can just go missing, untouchable. Uh, maybe if you've lost your child, your kid's in the supermarket for a moment and you go hastily running after them, you can feel something of the angst, uh, the anguish that loved ones of those who are missing feel at the moment. Longing for them, longing to see their face, longing to embrace them again. And the passage that we're looking at this morning, I think, speaks to that anguish, the ache when someone we love goes missing. It's what Mary Magdalene is feeling, isn't it? And I don't mean to be flippant. When you think about it, this has been the weekend from hell for her. If you know her story, she was a missing person. Seven demons apparently lurked in her body and took her off the reservation and Jesus finds her and brings her back. And now he, her Lord and her teacher, is gone. Dead, buried, in a tomb not far from his cross. And on Friday we thought about what that all means. You know, why is Friday, Good Friday, called good? Well, it's because, as we saw, your judgment for your sin is taken. Uh, the forsakenness before God that you and me deserve to bear, taken by Jesus and that gives you and me access again to God. Now, I'm not sure Mary's thinking about that at the moment. I think, again, look, it's why she goes to the tomb. There's this longing for him, for his body, to see him. That's what grief does, and perhaps you've felt that. But her anguish is about to be cranked up. Like, look at verse 1. Early on the first day of the week... While it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb, writes John, and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, likely John, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. He's not just dead, he's gone missing now, there is a little difference between John and the other Gospels. Mary is alone here. In Mark and Matthew, there's other women with her, but they single her out. And I think it's because you are meant to be reading this, looking through Mary's eyes. This is a personal thing. This is not some abstract out there thing. This missing body of Jesus is going to make a difference to you. None of this is what she's expecting. She just wants to be near his body, even if she can't get into the tomb, but now the stone's been removed. And so again, notice in verse 2, what is she assuming? Robbery or something worse. They've taken his body. I want to say that there's a few things that we learn about the missing body of Jesus that help us to understand why we should believe that he's actually alive today. The first thing is, I think John wants to show you that the missing body, it's not like a hoax. It's not some furphy, right? A plot to fool people. It's what Jesus said would happen. The little details as John and Peter show you this as they get to the tomb. Look at verse 5. So he, that's John, 
bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. Uh, Ever since, I think, the first Easter, people have been trying to discredit the resurrection, saying it's just a hoax. And so they come up with theories. So one's called the swoon theory. Uh, Look, that's got more holes in it than a piece of Swiss cheese. I don't think we'll bother with that one. Um, People tend to go with Jesus' body was stolen, either by the Jewish leaders or by some of the disciples. Well, if you could overpower the Roman guard, roll back the enormous stone, why would you bother unwrapping the body, which I think is caked in about 35 kilos worth of spices, says John back in chapter 19, verse 35, and then fold them. Uh, It couldn't have been guys because they don't fold clothes, right? Anyway, I mean, it would just be easier to pick him up, wrapped all ready to go, and out you go. But no, John sees it, verse 8, finally the other disciple who'd reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. Next little detail in verse 9 is a little confusing at first, but I think it's saying the body hasn't been stolen by other disciples, perhaps who are more zealous. Verse 9, they still don't understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Jesus predicted it, the Old Testament foreshadows it, no one's expecting it. No one's saying, all right, the next move here is to steal the body so it looks like a resurrection's happened. It's just so unlikely that they're going to enter some kind of conspiracy to pull off this kind of hoax. They don't even believe that it should happen. If it was Jesus' enemies who took the body, you know, the religious leaders... Uh, that would serve their purposes in nixing a hoax because all they've got to do is present the body, done. End of story, right? That's all well and good. The thing is, you might be here today, of course, hey, Easter, and that's what we do. We go to church on Easter Sunday, but this is all a bit of a fairy tale, really, isn't it? Maybe you're thinking that. Maybe you're thinking, hang on, you're just getting all of this out of the Bible and the Bible's just not trustworthy, particularly, say, something like John's Gospel. Look, it's very safe to say that Jesus lived and at least died. He pops up in plenty of ancient historical writing from Jewish and Roman sources around this time. It is so hard to find any serious ancient historian, uh, academic, who'll say he didn't exist. And many of them who are very, very sceptical about Jesus rising from the dead, they look at the Gospels like John and say... These are super, super reliable when it comes to actually having any access to Jesus, the real historical person. They use the memory of eyewitnesses like Mary and Peter and John. Now, you might say, hang on a tick, I can't remember what I had for breakfast. How can I actually trust their recollection, right? Well, the disciples of Jesus, like any followers of any rabbi in that day, their job was to remember to remember his words, to remember what he did. They are invested big time in remembering all of this. Uh, Rebecca McLaughlin has written a little primer on Easter, of which I've got a handful of copies left if you want to grab something to dig deeper. She says, look, if you were going to write a biography of someone like Martin Luther King Jr., 
how would you do it? You would, you would consult his close friends and his associates. And while it might be over 50 years since the events around his life and his death took place, you could be confident they'd remember rightly because his life and his death changed their lives. If, if Martin Luther King can do that for his friends and associates, how much more Jesus? got every reason to trust what Mary, what Peter and John recount. We can trust them. They've got no good reason to cook things up. Actually, often the way the disciples particularly are portrayed in the Gospels, they just look like turkeys, don't they? There's, there is no whiff of propaganda about this. Or, I don't know, you might be sitting here today going, look, th- this is still fairy tale, right? Because science. That trumps everything, doesn't it? Well, Ian Hutchinson, uh, he's a professor of nuclear science and engineering at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He says, natural science describes the normal reproducible workings of the the world of nature. So, yeah, it doesn't do miracles. But Hutchinson, a top-flight scientist, says this. Contrary to increasingly popular opinion, science is not our only means for accessing the truth. He says you need other evidence to get at the truth of things. And this is really good evidence in the mind of ancient historians and many scientists like Ian Hutchinson. It convinced him. So you can believe this. It's believable. We come more now to what convinces us even more, I think. The focus shifts off Peter and John. They clear off and we come back to Mary. And the second thing you see about Jesus' body here is that, well... His body's alive and this turns everything around for Mary, for you and for me. Now, as the passage rolls on, there's some things here that I'm not 100% sure about. Like verse 12, if you look there, I'd have thought two angels sitting where Jesus' body should have been would have been quite good at confirming that he's alive, but it doesn't. And I guess that's the thing. The first eyewitnesses need to see a body. Uh, The angels, in verse 13, ask a very pastoral question, woman, why are you crying? But her answer, it just shows she's not getting it. She's given up. She's still thinking about a body that's been taken away. But that's the humanness of John's Gospel. Again, you're not reading a propaganda piece. Verse 14, she turns and she actually sees Jesus, but she doesn't recognise him immediately. And you think, what's with that? Well, I mean, I don't know, if you've ever been to a funeral of someone that you love, what are your eyes like? They're filled with tears and swollen, aren't they? She's not seeing clearly, and she's only looked quickly. Verse 16 is the tip-off that she glances, then she turns back. Those swollen red eyes filled with tears are glued to the spot where she thinks his body should be. And verse 15, I'm not sure why Jesus' question doesn't jolt her out of the gloom. Like, woman, why are you weeping? Who are you seeking? I can only chalk it up to her expectations again. But what cuts through? Look at verse 16. Mary. Now, Frederick Dale Brunner's commentary on John's Gospel says this is Jesus' shortest sermon and he's most dramatic. 
It's the dramatic playing out of John 10, isn't it? The good shepherd knows his sheep and calls them by name and his sheep know his voice. Verse 16, Mary turned toward him and cries out in Aramaic, Rabboni, teacher, or more like my teacher. In a split second, she's been turned around by this. From, from the tomb to Jesus. It's the moment that turns the whole world around. Now, look, I know he rose from the dead before this. Someone took the body from the tomb, absolutely. It was just Jesus doing it, right? But for Mary and you and me, everything before this in John's Gospel is BC and now it's AD. Everything before this for Mary is the deepest human despair, the anguish about people going missing, that death always takes the ones that we love. But now it's the deepest human elation. Everything is turned around. This changes our expectations about the future. Yes, your future in the short term or the long term means dying and death and deep sadness, but that's not it. (laughs) Jesus' body is alive. That's the final word, really. And she's the first to see it. That's marvellous. That's another little reason to believe this. In the ancient world, the testimony of women was regarded as inadmissible evidence in court. So there's a guy called Celsus in the second century. He laughed at the idea that Mary's the first to see this. He writes, After death, Jesus rose again and showed the marks of his punishment and how his hands had been pierced. But who saw this? A hysterical female. His words, not mine, just... Let's be clear about that. The point being, if you're trying to convince a first century audience that something incredible happened, you wouldn't have the key witness as a woman. But the Gospels do because they're not embarrassed about this because, well, this is what happened. And this is actually what makes it credible. She's singled out because she's there. She's seeing this new reality through her eyes, through the ache and through the tears... But this changes everything. And this brings us to the last thing that I want to talk about. How does this new reality that Easter Sunday is about become, well, how does it come home for us? Jesus' body's gone. Jesus' body is alive. The last thing you see here is that Jesus' body is going to bring about a reunion for missing persons. Look at verse 17 again. Jesus says, to Mary not to hold on to him and that's again doing more apologetic work he's not a phantom he's not just raised in Mary's imagination and she embraces him he gives her what she needs but she can't keep holding on to Jesus's body forever because well verse 18 she needs to witness to others that this has happened but this isn't just about Mary's mission there's something still for Jesus's body to do verse 17 again he says don't hold on to me for I've not yet ascended to the Father. Don't know if you've ever wondered about this, but like, where is Jesus now? Well, he's in a body with the Father. Mind-blowing, isn't it? You could argue that at the cross, as he gives up his spirit, that's when he ascends, maybe, but his body is yet to ascend fully and finally. In the Gospels, he seems to come and go until he finally goes, like you read about in Acts chapter 1. And when he does do that, that makes something very real for us now, which he hints at, 
This is what's coming in verse 17. He says, Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. His body raised means the forgiveness of sins. It means acceptance. It means a reunion for missing persons. Now, Jesus isn't the only one who went missing over the weekend. Like, think of the disciples for a moment. Not their finest moment, Easter, really, is it? Denying Jesus, deserting him. But what does he call them? Brothers. Died and raised in a body. That means your sin is really forgiven. His death has really paid the penalty. If he stayed dead and missing, we would never know if any of this stuff worked. But we know forgiveness is true. The way he talks about God, my Father, my God, his relationship with the Father who is God is unique. But because he's raised to life in a body, God is our Father, our God, by grace. He undoes what sin does to us. Now, the people that I was looking at, the faces I was staring at on the AFP's website, they're not the only missing persons. You know, the Bible tells us that we've all gone missing. In the Garden of Eden, as Adam and Eve sin, it's like they're trying to bring God close on their terms, but the effect is they really go missing. They run. They hide. Sin alienates us from God, it undoes the family, it turns us into runners from God and from each other. I mean, it's why people run from relationships and responsibility 53,000 times a year, say the stats. It alienates, sin alienates us from ourselves. It disorders us body and soul. It's why when you die, your body and soul are parted. Your body's gone. But Jesus' body raised reunites missing persons so that you're forgiven and accepted, you're reunited with God and others and yourself. One of the old Reformation catechisms, the Heidelberg Catechism, question 49 asks, how does Christ's ascension benefit us? And part of the answer is, we have our own flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that Christ, our head, will also take us, his members, up to himself. It's a good thing to remember, isn't it? His body reunites us when we go missing. That's not just so much about the people out there who are missing today. He reunites us when the anguish and grief of our loved ones' bodies go. You know, when you bury your wife or your husband, your parents may be a child. You want to embrace them again and you can't, Well, Jesus' raised body says you can. This is the comfort for our own bodies going missing. I don't know. Look, maybe a life-altering injury, slow burn sickness, age, disability, then death. And look, people try to beat it all the time, don't they? The number of people on push bikes and jogging this morning to stay young. Good on them, absolutely. 100%. But that's not all we have to settle for. About 10 years ago, a guy called Dave McDonald, he's a pastor, he was diagnosed with stage 4 lung cancer and he wrote a little book called Hope Beyond Cure. 
And he says, look, you might get cured of terminal cancer, but something else will cause your body to die and decay. And this is a man with terminal cancer with a body going missing writing. He says, when I was younger, I remember seeing picture books describing heaven. These books pictured God sitting on a cloud, St Peter ticking off names at the gate and people wearing white dresses and playing harps. The scenes looked pretty wimpy and incredibly boring. The good news is that none of these ideas come from the Bible. The Bible doesn't give us a clear picture exactly of what life after death looks like, but one thing, the most important thing is clear, it'll be worth waiting for. God promises us new bodies that will be suitable for eternity. This is excellent news, he writes. There is no way I want to be stuck forever with the body I have now. When I was 18, I might have been able to cope with the idea of being forever young, fit, slim, with a head full of hair. But now the weight gain, the wrinkles, the hair loss, not to mention the damage done by the cancer and the chemo, make this a very unpleasant prospect. I'm delighted by the promise of a new body. Your body will go missing. But Jesus' body, standing before Mary Magdalene, that is flesh on the promise of something worth waiting for. Reunited in the flesh with the ones that you love, with yourself and with the God that you've been missing. That's why you should believe today. Let's pray together. Now, Father God, we thank you for today. We thank you so much for the good news that we do actually know where Jesus' body is, risen from the dead, alive and ascended, the body that reunites us with you, with those that we've lost and with ourselves. We thank you that you are now our Father and our God indeed. We thank you that the resurrected living body of Jesus speaks to our fears to our pain, to our loss, to our dying. Help us to see that this is the good news we need dearly today. I pray, Father, for anyone who's struggling to believe. Help them to see that we've got good reason to believe, that when we look at Jesus in the Gospels, we've got flesh on your promise of a new body. We pray this in Jesus' strong name. Amen.